data breaches were the center of gravity for cybersecurity. Data sharing, I see as the center of gravity around privacy and online ad compliance. And today it's arguable, it's actually provable that there's more data being shared non-compliantly from consumers through online advertising than there has ever been through breaches because ESG has exploded into compliance and business consciousness in 2021. Join Tom Fox, the voice of compliance on the ESG report and learn about sustainability risks, opportunities, and issues that business leaders and compliance professionals need to know about regarding ESG. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. And today I have with me Dan Fretzley. Dan, first of all, welcome to the podcast. Tom's good to be here. I enjoy listening to your various compliance shows. They're a really good source for me. So we're going to take a kind of a broad brush on a wide range of issues today. But before we get started, Dan, could you tell the audience a little bit about your professional background? Sure. I came from a background in marketing. So I started my career as a marketer, began really in more kind of the most classic of places, which was selling Cheerios. That was my first product right out of college. And I was on the marketing side at General Mills. So I really got ingrained with me the power of marketing and belief in marketing. And it really wasn't until later in life when I had a very significant event that completely flipped around my view of what we today view as hyper-targeting and information sharing and data sharing that powers marketing. So I began at General Mills. I went and got my degree from business school and then didn't know what I wanted to do after that. So I got into consulting and worked for McKinsey. Then I got sucked into the first dot-com wave right before the turn of the century and worked for stamps.com. And then from there, it's been a lot of B2B SaaS and now ending up at Boltiv, where I'm CEO of a company that helps keep the internet safe from invasive media. Well, I will just shout out to stamps.com because I've been a user since uh, the early 2000s. So you're the first person I've met who uh, actually worked there. Kudos. <laughs> well, thanks for your patience. With The product in the early 2000s had some had some hard edges to be ironed out. You mentioned Boltiv. Could you tell us your current role with that company? Yeah. So I'm CEO of Boltiv, and I joined in April of 2021. What brought me here was really personal and professional at the same time. So my last company was a company called G2 that I was with when we sold it to Verisk Analytics and ran that business inside Verisk. And that was another cybersecurity-related business and compliance business. But while I was there, my wife was diagnosed with cancer. And as I was researching treatments, I discovered I was getting followed and profiled all over the web and served kind of shady cancer treatments. And, and that was when I was working with Inverest. We didn't have that technology, but Boltiv did. And I kind of view what I experienced, which is known as retargeting or unlawful data sharing. There's lots of different names for it, even called surveillance advertising in political circles, that it plagues a lot of people. And that's really our mission right now is, as I said before, to, to avoid invasive ads, to help consumers be free of invasive ads, but most importantly, help internet brands avoid the damage that invasive ads can cause to their visitor traffic and reputation. Well, that leads directly into what I wanted to ask you next, because you had a term on your website I had never seen before, which was invasive media. Could you tell us what that is? And although I think you just described it. Yeah, I kind of gave you a high level, but invasive media comes in several forms. There's the surveillance part or the data leaking part that I was just mentioning that, that really invade privacy. But it goes beyond that. In fact, our company started with 
discovering malware in advertising. So redirects and Trojans and malicious browser extensions and other problems that are malicious intent in ads, that's another form of invasive advertising. In recent years, with the political discourse in this country evolving the way it has, there's also more ads with what's considered offensive content. And some of our customers like us to block those for them. Some of our customers like to block ads from competitors. So invasive advertising can really be many, many different forms. And we see our role to protect brands and publishers and technology platforms so those ads don't get inadvertently served. Because it's the world of programmatic advertising, which is most of advertising, is about 90% of display advertising, is very lawless and algorithm-driven. So you don't even, as a publisher, know what ads are being served on your sites until they're rendered. So and that really leads me to ask you about the protections you provide for platforms, brands, and publishers, because I had originally thought those might be three disparate groups, yet you seem to be able to bring some sort of just protection to each one of those. Yeah, they're slightly different technologies for each. And with publishers, for example, and some retailers, there's on-page solutions. For companies that are ad buyers for the brands, we have code that rides along with the ad and make sure that it doesn't render in an area that is unpleasant or off-brand environment. But the issue is really kind of more broadly that at any given time, over 20% of ads on the internet are malicious, unsafe, or non-compliant in various ways. And even one poor quality ad can have a big impact for our customers. So whether the node is the ad seller where the ad is rendering, or it's the ad buyer who's placing the ad, or it's the intermediaries in the middle, we have various solutions that clean that up and avoid their experiencing reputation damage as a result. Could you describe for us the Boltive Solution Ad Lightning, what that is and what it's designed to protect us from? Sure. So there's two parts of our business and what we call Ad Lightning is our ad quality product. And then what we have up for Privacy Guard is more specific around preventing data sharing that consumers don't want. But when you ask about Ad Lightning, that product specifically, we help publishers and technology platforms be proactive. And this means that they can replace these invasive ads, the malicious and non-compliant ads with safe or revenue generating ads. And we can protect their user experience against ads that autoplay or slow down page load or slow down devices, which I think many of us have experienced. And this works across different devices, whether it is open web or in-app or web view, but it's all about compliance. And the compliance may be terms of service and compliance with what the user experiences that our customers want, but it actually may be legal compliance as well with a lot of the privacy laws that are coming into, into effect uh, in the next year in the U.S. is quite a sea change in what's considered permissible when it comes to advertising and digital objects. Let me repeat that because I'm not sure I heard it right. Did I hear you say compliance with user experience is a criteria? Yeah. For many publishers, they invest a lot of time in getting the very best content. And the user experience impact of an ad that shows up and slows down the page or offends a user or appears unsafe to a user, that can send that visitor away despite all the investments that you make in content. It can be some piece of content from a third party that you don't even see as a publisher and that can hurt your business. So when we talk about compliance, sometimes it's with compliance with the standards that publishers set 
or intermediary set or that brand set because they care about their reputation. They care about brand safety. I'm going to stick on that because I have never heard that term before. And that is an incredible insight for a compliance professional, because although you may understand your customer as a stakeholder, you rarely think of compliance with a user. And if I could even say a corporate compliance professional, their customers are their employees, the consumers of in-house compliance. So how can you assess the user experience from this compliance perspective going forward? What we're talking about here, Tom, is that brands and publishers are held to a higher standard. 10 years ago, if ads showed up in environments where the context surrounding them were unpalatable in some way, that was not the issue that it is today. Now, brands are held accountable when that happens. So, when that, so I really do believe in compliance with, with brand safety. How you solve for that, there are various ways of doing it. The way Boltiv solves for that is that we have what we call synthetic personas, and they surf the web like real people would. They have histories. They have sites they visited. They have items that they've shopped before. They have devices that they use. They have locations. And we can simulate any audience for a customer. We can simulate any core audience for a customer. And by running these simulated personas through customer journeys and recording everything that happens, then we can come back and say, here's what your users are experiencing and here's where it is at which point in time. And if there's anything non-compliance about it, we can go back with the timestamp and the evidence to show exactly what happened. Because many times companies are unaware of their own user experiences. Many times, like in cybersecurity, it's the doing of the intermediaries, the vendors, the third parties, the service providers that are creating these non-compliant and bad user experiences. So that's where we turn sort of the user view, but automate it in such a way so that each step along the way is recordable and traceable if anything goes wrong. Let me see if I can translate that into compliance speak. What I thought I heard you say was continuous monitoring leading to continuous improvement. That's good. Yes, that's a very good way to describe it. Wow. I cannot tell you what a revelation these are and hearing these from a perspective completely outside of mine is Wow, that's all I can say. Okay, well, let me move to some data privacy issues because that is really front of mind or should be with everyone. And you seem to believe that this is a top five concern for both CEOs and perhaps even at the board of directors level. Would that be a fair assessment? I do. I do think that is a fair assessment. I think these issues from consumer complaints to regulatory action does put it at the board level and the CEO level. How do you counsel boards and CEOs to begin to start thinking about these issues? I think there's various steps you can take. Privacy regulations that we're seeing right now are unlike anything we've seen before. That's important to understand. So one of the first things to do is to assign a leader for your data privacy program. In GDPR, which GDPR is really the origin of today's modern compliance rules around privacy, they require a data protection officer. Now, U.S. laws haven't gone that far. It's not required under the California landmark laws or even the federal bill that's being considered, but it's a really good idea to have someone, a responsible person. The other thing I would say that's fundamental is to map data across your organization, to know where your data is. And under the NIST privacy framework, that consists of an inventory and a data flow. And if you think about things in those concepts, a lot of the other complexities of privacy and data protection 
fall into that. Know your inventory. Identify the inventory that you're processing and pay attention if any of it is sensitive. Sensitive meaning reflective of religion, sexual orientation, health conditions, and other geolocation can even be considered sensitive because there's special legal protections around that that make it very different than everything else. And then understanding the flow of the data as well. I think one of the things that frustrates many in the corporate world, particularly in the United States, is either the lack of a federal law or the multitude of laws of the 50 states. Certainly GDPR leads the way. And I think companies who come under GDPR have worked very hard to comply with that. But they seem to be at wit's end on the 50 different states in the U.S. Do you see a federal law possible under our current political situation? And if not, how do you help or how would you try to counsel a company to comply with privacy laws just in the United States? This is an area where I don't think that we're going to have a federal standard, unfortunately. I think we are going to be stuck with a patchwork. We made a lot of good progress last summer when the ADPPA made it out of a committee and was going to be brought to a House vote. And it was in a bipartisan way, which is so rare these days, but it didn't make it through. It didn't make it floor vote because there was concern from California and Nancy Pelosi being Speaker of the House at that point was in a position to enforce this. But California was concerned that the national law would impinge on California's own privacy law. So it was a decision that was right for California. We can argue whether it was right for the rest of the country to not have those provisions. But what's going on in privacy is similar to what happened in cybersecurity, where the notice laws around breaches went state by state, and every state had their own. Some were slightly different. I think the, thing, the same thing is going to happen in privacy because the political momentum at the federal level is going to be in other areas, and the states are going to be moving more quickly. We have five states that are enforcing new laws next year. It's not just California. There's Colorado, Connecticut, Virginia, Utah, 16 other states that are in process. So, no, it's going to be a patchwork. The best we can hope for is that there will be common clauses that are used across states and a uniformity so that it makes compliance less than having to do something slightly different for all 50 states, but choosing sort of the bar, the, the, the highest standard by state, and then making that a general policy across the country as a business trying to stay compliant. So why is there such a convoluted digital ad ecosystem and how does that potentially harm consumers? So two answers to that. One is the technologies underneath operate very, very quickly in a very, very automated way in 10 to 20 milliseconds for some processes, 20 to 50 milliseconds for other processes. Let me talk a little bit about history because it's very fascinating to look at the why we are where we've gotten today in digital advertising. We all on this podcast will know what cookies are. And cookies and content were intertwined because people used to search the web by visiting portals and sites and MSN and AOL. And that changed with Google, which with a search mechanism now drove people to all kinds of different places from those major networks, that network model that we started the internet with. And with cookies, it made that possible because you could see where someone had visited over time and you could see if someone had visited to a niche site when they spent time on that niche site. Another important part of history, which I find fascinating, is you. I don't know if you know, Tom, where the first cookie came from, but the first cookie actually came from a unique ID at Netscape. And there was an engineer there who was just seeking to create memory for browsers. So browsers used to have zero memory. With cookies, you were able to know, hey, what language does this customer prefer? Or what item has this customer put in their shopping? 
And cookies enabled all of that. It was an anonymous and private way so that your browser didn't forget what you were doing. And it only took one more year for the co-founder of DoubleClick to take that concept and realize, wow, you could make a lot of money in advertising if you rethink how the cookie could be used and was used as a way to follow people around and know what sites they had gone to. And that has led to many of the targeting innovations that we have today from the multi-device era that began in 2007 with the iPhone to device graphs that extend to connected TV. So that has been the sort of uh, unavoidable consequence of getting more and more hyper-targeted that all began with a cookie that was intended to give browsers memory. So what are some of the issues with online marketing from a compliance perspective, Dan? So there are are standards set by standards bodies like the IAB. There are standards that are set by the regulations themselves. And I think when we think about compliance and when we think about where privacy is going, it's in the U.S. very much about data sharing. Every state law that I've seen has some provision, whether the state law is live, about to be live, or under committee and debate. Every state has a provision that allows people to opt out of targeted advertising. And that seems to be the crucible issue. Data breaches were the center of gravity for cybersecurity. Data sharing, I see, is the center of gravity around privacy and online ad compliance. And today it's arguable, it's actually provable, that there's more data being shared non-compliantly from consumers through online advertising than there has ever been through breaches because there's 250 billion auctions per day in online advertising. There's like 15 billion stock trades. But if you look at those two as similar markets, the magnitude of data sharing that goes on in online advertising is much, much larger than I think many people realize. So that aspect of it makes it very much a target of regulation and data sharing is really the thing we have to get right, particularly with targeted advertising. If we continue to not have a federal piece of legislation giving us a framework to deal with this. Do you advocate that companies try to comply with GDPR as a gold standard or some mishmash or comply with the CCPA or other state laws? If you're a global business, GDPR is a good place to anchor yourself. There are some user experience aspects of GDPR which go beyond what we have in the U.S., The one that comes to mind first and foremost is the opt-in regime as opposed to the opt-out regime. The opt-in regime means that no targeting or data collection can occur until there is express consent from the user under GDPR to say, yes, I agree, go ahead and target me. Whereas in the US, its default is targeting is okay unless you opt out. So if you're a global business, I think it's a noble thing to anchor around the GDPR, but it's also very costly from a data collection standpoint to limit yourself in the US by following that standard. With regard to if you were going to separate how you handle Europe and how you handle the US, which is very doable with IP addresses. If you're in the US, I don't think it's a good idea to try to apply that same thinking and localize your compliance differently in California and Colorado and Connecticut. I think that's technically very difficult and I don't even know if it's lawful given residents could be outside of their borders. So in that regard, California is a pretty good standard to go by. It's interesting that states like Virginia, which are viewed as being more business friendly, actually do have provisions that are more stringent than California in some aspects, like, for example, sensitive data. So by consulting a lawyer and I think looking at what are the 
most restrictive elements of each state laws that you can go across the five state laws that are starting to roll in and take effect next year and put together a compliance program that makes you compatible across every state that has a law right now without going crazy technically and trying to do the impossible, which is to localize by state. And unfortunately, we're near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on yourself or any of the topics we've touched on, what would be the best way for them to do so? Well, you can visit our website, boltive.com, B-O-L-T-I-V-E. I'm also active on LinkedIn. I love to connect with people, Dan Freckling, F-R-E-C-H-T-L-I-N-G, and would love to talk more. I geek out on this subject, so I appreciate this this chance and, and happy to continue. Well, Dan, I for one hope we can continue this conversation. Thanks, Tom.